if somebody ends up dying of cancer and what we could learn from that and what they want to share with that dies with them, I think it's a crime. That's Eric Lander. He's president and director of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. He was also one of the principal leaders of the Human Genome Project that sequenced and mapped all of the genes in the human body. He spoke as part of the Public Health Grand Rounds conversation series at the Aspen Institute. This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. We bring you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. By unlocking life's code, the Human Genome Project has led to a greater understanding of genetic factors in disease. It's allowed the medical community to better diagnose, treat, and prevent illnesses like cancer. But more needs to be done, says Dr. Eric Lander. In this talk, he discusses how the medical records of sick patients need to be more easily shared, so more can be learned about disease. Lander also goes into why a culture of collaboration is needed to find cures. And he addresses a controversial article he wrote in early 2016 about the gene editing technology CRISPR. Later in the show, we'll hear from Ronald DePino. He's president of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. The one thing that cancer has, its greatest vulnerability, is knowledge. So if everybody knew how to reduce risk, catch it early, go to the right place for treatment, be treated in the right evidence-based way, cancer would fall to the acts of science. He talks about why oncology drugs are so expensive and why tobacco is still a big deal in the fight against cancer. But first, to Dr. Eric Lander. He's interviewed by Aspen Institute President and CEO Walter Isaacson in Washington, D.C. Here's Isaacson. Let me begin just by asking you to explain why you think precision medicine is a game changer. So what, let's, let's start with what is this precision medicine and, and, and what's been happening over the past couple of decades to get us to this point. In the 1980s, we had no idea of the genetic code. We, we understood there was DNA, but you couldn't read any of it. Then it became possible to read a little bit of the human genome and begin to ask, like, what are the genetic factors that cause disease? What genes actually contribute to all the different rare Mendelian diseases and the common diseases and Alzheimer's and all? But, but it was still a pipe dream then to, ima to imagine that we could ever read out and use all that information in medicine. So a lot of work, you referred to it, this Human Genome Project, this international effort that was conceived in the 1980s and really executed in the, early, in, in the 1990s to the the beginning part of the 21st century, was about trying to read out all that information. So that finally happened. And we, you know, we spent three billion bucks doing that. It would be very hard to imagine spending three billion bucks doing that on every patient. And so it's very good that since that first sequence at three billion bucks, the cost has fallen by a factor of about two million fold. Meaning how much would it cost me to sequence my genome? For you, 1,500 bucks. Yeah, thank right? you. <laughs> So, for you. No, no, it's, it's about 1,500 bucks. So, I mean, I don't know what's ever fallen by two million fold in the course of a decade or so. It's just been just stunning. Your head spins. So you go from having We'll no, call that Lander's Law because it's like the Moore's Law. Well, it's, in, in fact, I, I don't get credit for the law, but it is about three times faster. It would take 30, 30 years for Moore's Law to produce a two million fold drop of what we've seen over the course of the past 12 years or so in molecular biology. Mm. So suddenly it means you can start reading out information, not from one reference human genome, but from a thousand patients with a particular disease or from a population with tens of thousands of people. And what we've seen in the last 10 years is beginning to collect enough information from patients with particular diseases to start writing down what genes play roles in which diseases? Mainly cancers at first? Well, you know, it's actually many, many, many different diseases. But let's take cancer first. Back in the, the in prehistoric times, the mid-1980s, um, you know, the number of cancer genes we knew was four. That was considered a lot, and it gave us some good paradigms. And it, we said, well, we know how cancer works in principle. But in fact, what we've learned since then by reading out now 20,000 different cancers and comparing them to the normal cells from a person is 
which genes are mutated in which cancers. And it turns out there's a list now of almost 300 different cancer genes. So when we talk about cancer, nah, it's a whole bunch of different categories. And any one cancer is caused by multiple different mutations. So when we ask how are we going to cure cancer, the first question is, how are we going to sort it into these unique homogeneous categories and then figure out how to cure each of those? Now, that might sound like it's getting harder and harder because it's getting broken up into lots of buckets. But on the other hand, what we're also seeing is that things we used to call different cancers often have the same mechanism at work. Mm. So we're really reclassifying. Instead of calling things by where in the body they occur, we're calling things by what's actually broken, by what the circuit how the circuit is changed. And so- Is there some analogy or some comparison to other things like say schizophrenia? Well, so uh, cancer is a really productive area, but you know, all sorts of other diseases, diabetes and, and you know, Alzheimer's have been looked at, but schizophrenia is a particularly exciting one because basically schizophrenia for the last century since the disease was defined, has been a total black box. You can't study it in a mouse. There's no way to tell, does this mouse have delusions? There's no way to go study it in a Petri plate. You can't tell whether it have a cancer. You can look at a Petri plate. You can't do that for schizophrenia. So it's been, and, and also cancer people are very happy to give you their tumor, whereas schizophrenia people are reluctant to give you their brain. So for a lot of reasons, we've had no other purchase on this problem other than to ask, amongst people with schizophrenia, are there some genetic changes that are more common than say in the general population. Now, you might have thought, oh, it'd be easy to be like one gene mutated and that's the cause of schizophrenia. People tried, that wasn't it. And instead what happened was we began to see tremendous collaboration. There was a group at the Broad actually that helped pull together an international collaboration across 30 countries and eventually brought together 110,000 patients, uh, samples, patients and controls and led about two years ago to the discovery of about 100 genes that affect the risk of schizophrenia. And then most excitingly, this past January, there was a paper that figured out what the biggest effect of those genes was. The, the single gene that had the biggest effect, we now know what it does, and it's really enlightening. What about, does it do? It turns out it's a gene involved in the pruning of connections between neurons. Yeah. So it turns out that you know, in adolescence, there's zillions of connections that are formed. And in early adulthood, they get pruned back. This, this is a little bit of, of, of the important brain changes that happen as you go from an adolescent to an adult. Um, it turns out that some people have a form of the gene that's overactive in the pruning, and they have a higher risk of schizophrenia. So for the first time, we know a cause of schizophrenia is over-aggressive pruning of those synapses. And you could imagine, and that's just a distant imagining, that someday there could be a medication that if somebody had early signs of schizophrenia, you might take an inhibitor of that process. But what's important is it's not a black box anymore. You can but, peer in. So the first wave of what we will do to put, uh, make these discoveries useful would be to create pharmaceuticals that counter the effect? That's usually, or sometimes, uh, you know, ramp up the effect. But usually what's happening here is, you know, if we just draw an analogy, is some kind of a circuit or some kind of a, you know, a system like in your car, and, and something is, is a little not working so well, and you want to ramp it up or you want to ramp it down. Mm -hmm. And pharmaceuticals do that. They bind to a protein and turn down or turn up their activity. And initially, that's what people are looking for. But drug makers have no clue what to make a drug against. What we have to do, and where the big data comes in, is to discover actually what are the important components in any disease? What are the targets that you might go after? Once you know what the targets are, 10 companies can compete to make drugs against that target. Mm -hmm. But the knowledge of what the target is, that's a public good. It's not something that any one company is going to invest all that money to find. So how do we get it as a public good versus a patented or copyrighted uh, discovery? Well, this is a really important thing. So you get public goods by paying for them as a public. That's the starting point, is we generate basic knowledge. Back when we did the Human Genome Project together, that collaboration was committed to the rule that all that information got put out on the web every night 
no restrictions on its use, available to anybody, any country. And that was, what, $3 billion of uh, Francis Collins and the uh, NIH? And, and some other countries contributed right, to it. Right. The U.S. was the major funder, um, and the NIH was the major yeah. funder. But the real US. quickly, you had sort of an outlier, which was somebody trying to do it privately for profit. That's right. Venter. At the very end of the Human Genome Project, the last couple of years, a private company wanted to race to produce a private version of the human genome sequence. Now, between you and me, if I have a business plan to produce a private version of something that you're producing and making publicly available, I'm not sure it's a very good business plan. And it turned out not to be a very good business plan, because in fact, uh, the company, with, uh, they, they did a fine job of also producing a sequence, but doing it as a private good turned out not to make much sense. But, but real quickly, it would turn out to be a very good business plan if you had a federal government that had suddenly decided not to, to do public fund goods. public goods. And if we back out of public goods, we would have instead had a human genome behind the paywall. And what's been so great about the human genome is the mix and match. It gets used in a thousand ways you never imagined. It's, you know, if the human genome is the map, like, like a Google Maps, we layer on top of it all this other information every day, the traffic patterns in Washington, where the pizzerias are and things. And that only works because all of those different layers are available for seeing. So having had a fundamental map that everybody could look at turned out to be important. We've got to remember that that part only comes by investing in public goods. And you've said maybe five times so far yep. the importance of the big data and having big data so you can go through everybody's drugs and genomes and mutations and whatever. Um, we live in a world, uh, a country especially, that if I may get myself in trouble by saying so, is neurologically privacy obsessed as if somehow or another sharing our genetic information means the government and our insurance companies will get at us. And so we have HIPAA laws that make this almost impossible to do. Is there a way that we can say, as a public good, we're going to have anonymized, meaning it won't have a name on it, but we're going to say, count me in. You and I have talked about this right, for years. Right, that's count what we call Count me in so all my data can be used to help refine treatments for everybody who has my disease or may not have my disease. Right. So, so several years ago, you, know, you and I talked about this count me in principle, that the principle that every patient should have the right and the ability to share their data if they want to, to accelerate medical progress. So since we talked, and we, we talked some years ago about this, we've actually launched the first Count Me In project. And it's a really interesting example. It's in metastatic breast cancer. And it's the work of two people at the Broad Institute, um, a physician scientist, Nick Wagley, and a, a PhD scientist, Corey Painter. Um, and what they did was, well, they recognized that metastatic breast cancer is a very serious thing. About 200,000 women a year are diagnosed with breast cancer, and about a third of them will go on to get metastatic breast cancer, and essentially that's what kills people with breast cancer. If you don't get metastatic breast cancer, it's usually just fine. So surprisingly, there's not that much work done on questions like, why do some people with metastatic breast cancer respond really well to certain drugs? Oh, I don't know a drug like Zolota or a platinum drug. And the reason why is it's very hard to, con to collect enough patients to get an answer. So Nick actually tried to do this at the Dana-Farber for three years, set up a protocol, tried to get patients to sign up. They signed up, but the truth is only 15% of all patients are even seen at major medical centers. And of course, each medical center gets a tiny slice of those patients, maybe 1% of the patients. And so what Nick found was each year he could recruit 40 patients. So after three years, he had 120 patients, which if you're going to ask, now what about the subset that respond to this, you're down to four or something like that. So instead, they created this Count Me In project. They reached out to all the groups that support people with metastatic breast cancer. There are 13 of them. And they worked with him for almost a year to try to design a system and a website where people could sign up. They'd go on the web and say... Like being an organ donor. Like being an organ donor, except you're still alive. Because mm -hmm. um, all you're really donating here is uh, 
access to medical information and access to a block of tissue that's sitting in a freezer in a hospital. So they worked really hard at it, and they kept revising this. And there were a whole bunch of, of the patient advocates who were very much a part of this process. Everything from, from you know, paying attention to the wording and the clarity to changing the picture on the front part of the website, which was an important thing. And with that partnership, they went live last fall. In the first five months, more than 1,600 people signed up said, count me in. I want to be part of this. And it's been amazing. Because when you look at those 1,600 people, I've gotten to meet some of them because they've come and visited at the Broad. You've, I've met more of them online because many of them are extremely active on social media. But when you look, they've given information about how long have I been on different drugs. And we're able to now look for extraordinary responders. Like I said, that drug Zolota. There's now more than 100 extraordinary responders, people who have continued on Zolota for an, a surprisingly long period of time, about 100 such people. So they're now able to go and ask for the, the DNA or the block of material from the hospital. Now notice, these are people in, in Nevada and Missouri and Florida and Washington State. There's not one institutional review board protocol approved by your local institution. Mm -hmm. It's a national IRB. And the patients give permission to access that information wherever it may be. And Nick and Corey are giving back all this information to the patients. Including sequencing their genome form? They're, well, in the cases where, like where there's an extraordinary responder, we're now going to be sequencing the genomes. Now, it's not to give medical care to each patient, of course. It's to learn about what drives that extraordinary response to Zolota or Platinums or whatever. And so the patients have all signed up to say, I'm willing to share in that protected space. So notice, nobody's saying, I want to put my data on a billboard. I want to make it freely available on the web. They're saying, I'm willing to make it available to bona fide researchers who agree not to go try to you know, re-identify me and do other things. We're not talking about a radical kind of sharing. We're talking about a sharing that's respectful of it. We've got to be respectful that people have a right to share, not just the right to be left alone. Because when you sit down with the people in the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project and you ask them, what are your concerns about data sharing? The answer to a person has been, there's not enough of it. Right. How come this doctor isn't sharing my data with that doctor? How come? Well, I, well look, there's a lot of complicated reasons here. Um, there are probably some people who aren't sharing because they still have an old 20th century notion that they're going to solve the problem by hoarding their own data. And then there are a lot of misunderstandings about HIPAA. I can't tell you how many patients have asked their hospital for a copy of their medical record. Yeah, I've done that. And gotten told, oh, I can't give that to you because of HIPAA. Right. John um, Hopkins. Rested. You can't have it because of HIPAA. Why don't we have electronic medical records that are interoperable? I mean, wouldn't that help? Well, okay, so now let's, let's, let's dissect the pathology here. Yeah. Number one, there's not a deep understanding that patients have the right to have their data in the first place. You get all these, these concerns right. about you can't have it because of HIPAA. But then the more sophisticated people, who, who are many, you ask them and, and they'll say, well, look, I want to give you your data, but there's no button I can push to right. give you your data. I can give you a little chunk of it here or a little piece there, but I walk in and say, my medical record, please, just give it to me. They actually don't have a button to push. I've been over to the hospitals we have in Boston. They're great hospitals. They want to do the right thing. There actually isn't the functionality to do it. Well, wait, I can go to Ramallah in the West Bank and get my entire Citibank records and all my transactions instantly on an ATM, but I can't get any of my medical records. Whose fault is that? I mean, can't you fix it as a co-chair of PCAST? Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. I, I'm sure everybody here appreciates just how powerful, uh, how much power Washington has to wave a wand and fix problems it used like to. that. It used to, yes. Um, no, uh, why? Look, it goes back. It goes back a lot of ways. When when these medical records were built, they were never electronic. Then electronic medical records came in, and for a lot of understandable commercial reasons, the systems are proprietary systems, where you you know the vendors really don't want them to be fully interoperable. Because imagine if your me medical records were so interoperable. Yeah. 
It would I be could very, change doctors. You could change them, or actually, third-party innovators could come in and write software for the hospital because they could port information from one system to another. Yeah. So we don't have an iPhone app store for medical software because, well, people would rather have it in balkanized systems. But the truth is the law actually guarantees you this. HIPAA says you're entitled to your medical record, and it says if your medical record is in electronic form, you're entitled to it in electronic form. So the law is unambiguous. And I see the administration now beginning to issue regulations that clarify this even more. But this shouldn't be a question. You should be is able to check Is there anybody in this room who has called their hospital or doctor and said, please send me electronically my medical records and got a yes? One, two. I tried it and I couldn't. I mean, because I... Yeah, all right. And Kaiser Permanente can Kaiser, do certain things. I've been told Kaiser does There are some, some good examples that we would call existence proofs, that there's not a law of physics that says this can't be done, right? It's just a fact that it's really hard to do it. It should be easy. It should be the case that any of us who want to say, I have some disease, I want to make sure that that information doesn't go to waste, especially in the case of cancer. If somebody ends up dying of cancer, and what we could learn from that and what they want to share with that dies with them, I think it's a crime. And we can't let that happen. So we got to fix those things. Then, Walter, the third point is, even if the hospital can push the button and get the medical record for the patient to send somewhere, we do have this question of being able to integrate them. Are they interoperable? Now, frankly, I'm most optimistic about that. We got all sorts yeah. of technology innovators. If we have enough medical records out there from diff different systems, I think the machine learning systems that learn how to play Go can learn how to interoperate amongst medical records. So I'm least worried about that one. Does that but mean, it's important. Does that mean that precision medicine will end up being totally individualized and there'll be a drug for each person in each disease or malady? No, no, I actually like the name precision medicine compared to what people used to say, which was personalized medicine. Because personalized medicine gave the impression we were gonna make a drug for each person. I think given the cost of making a drug, that's not so likely. Um, even running a clinical trial for you personally. Now, what's precision medicine? Precision medicine is giving each disease its own proper name. There was a time we said people had diabetes. Then we split it. There's type 1 diabetes, the juvenile kind that's an autoimmune attack on your pancreas, and type 2 diabetes, which is this adult uh, diabetes which involves insulin resistance, and, and you treat them differently. Precision medicine is treating disease with precision. It's understanding when a patient comes in with cancer, peering into the cancer, and answering four questions. Why is that thing a cancer? What are the genes that are driving it? Where could I punch it to knock it down? What are the best targets? What are the Achilles heels? If I punch it there, how's it gonna become resistant? And then how do I combine therapies like I do with HIV and AIDS so that it can't get back up? Well, let's, let's take one cancer example Good. and explain to me how it would work. Uh, melanoma? Melanoma. Okay. So, so let's take melanoma. So it turns out people found, once the human genome was sequenced, some folks here in England, a great group, found out that 50% of people with melanoma have a mutation in a particular gene. It goes by the name BRAF. Mm -hmm. It's a gene that does a certain thing we understand in the cell, and somebody, just like you said, made an inhibitor for BRAF. When that BRAF protein is inhibited in the 50% of patients who have that mutation, miraculously, those melanomas like melt away. You see these incredible pictures of somebody with lumps all over their body, and it just disappears. Except, nine months later, they're back. Because that cancer, at least some, some of those cells, a fraction, one, hundred, one a million of those cells, had some additional mutation that got around your drug. But now we've been able to find, folks have been able to find in medicine, how it got around it. It made another mutation over here, and guess what, there's a drug for that. Mm -hmm. So now they're working on a combination therapy. Not just two drugs, that's not like the three drug cocktails in HIV, and maybe it'll take four, but eventually we win this game. Because we say, this is what's driving the cancer, we're gonna block it here, it's gonna get around there, but we're gonna block it there, and we're, 
And that's why it's big data. And that's why it is the sharing of data that is going to change the face of medicine, because we can't do it any and other way. And it's odd that the sharing of data should be the easiest part, and yet it's the part we haven't conquered. Yes. Okay. But it will be really embarrassing if we have to tell our children we didn't do what the science would make possible because we couldn't figure out how to let people who want to share their data share their data. Oh, so everybody here should be part of a Count Me In movement. Yes, everybody okay. should. Now, this also... Who wants to? You're welcome <laughs> not to. But the experience is, at least with cancer patients, 95% of cancer patients want to be part of it. Right. And we owe it to everybody to be part of it. Right. Uh, it seems... Uh, indulge me for a second because I'm going to ask a... Uh, question that talks about the culture of science. Yeah. And for the past 60 years, innovation has been driven largely by digital information technology. And that was the type of thing that somebody could do in a dorm room where they create a Facebook or in a garage where they create a Google or an Apple. And it played into that whole notion of somebody going to a garage or a garret and having a light bulb moment mm -hmm. and coming out with the light bulb or with Google or whatever. <laughs> What you've talked about cannot be done by individual entrepreneurs. It needs a whole culture of collaboration. When we move from a digital information technology revolution to a biotech revolution, what are the implications of that? And is that right? Well, I, th I think that is right. I think look, the Human Genome Project, which in, in my own career was my formative experience, was very much about it taking a collaboration, it taking a village. In our case, it took a global village to do something. It's a different model than the model, maybe the romantic model of scientists in the early part of the 20th century and the, the things you'd read about. about well, I mean, look, you wrote about Einstein. Einstein sitting in the patent office in 1905. Yeah. That's Einstein sitting there alone doing this. It's not a good model for what a lot of what has to happen in medicine is. Because we need people coming from so many different directions. People bringing sometimes math, medicine, chemistry, engineering, basic cell biology, all working together in, in ensembles. Sometimes it's actually a recognizable team. And sometimes it's just people bouncing off each other in all different ways. That's a better model. And I think that's a 21st century model for at least a lot of what we have to do. And we also need big old labs. You can't... in. Uh, it's going to advance genetic engineering in your dorm room. Your neighbors should be worried if you're doing the <laughs> yeah. genetic engineering in your garage. Yes. Yes. Right. Um, so this uh, collaborative model that you've been talking about, there, some of us feel guilty, like biographers. We sort of distort history by making it seem like you know Steve Jobs or somebody had a light bulb moment. Uh, I don't feel quite as guilty. Because well, you did the other book, The Innovators, well, right? Yeah, that's why that, that was a, more connecting. That was almost like a um, a mea culpa, where I tried to show that that most innovation was collaborative. It did not sell as well as a biography would have. Um, but another person or a group of people who screwed it up, perhaps, was Nobel and the Nobel Prize uh, family. Ah, yes. Um, it makes it seem like okay, we got to give a Nobel Prize to one person or three people, as opposed to the 1,400 who helped prove the Higgs boson or gravity waves or whatever. Yeah, so this is, this is an interesting point. Um, you want to reward achievement and acknowledge and credit achievement. It's a really important thing to do. But you want to get it right. So the Nobel Prize, it's interesting to go back to the history of the Nobel Prize. When Alfred Nobel died, he left this will. It was a very short will. And it said, uh, each year a prize will be given to the person who in the past year mm -hmm. has given the most benefit for mankind for X. Mm -hmm. He actually didn't check it with anybody. He told the Swedish Academy to give this prize, hadn't mentioned it to them. Um, he hadn't mentioned it to his family that, that he was giving away all his money to do this. And typical of rich families, they no doubt sued. <laughs> well, they sued. As it happens, they sued. And so there was, there was some kind of a legal action. I don't know all the details. But the settlement of it three years later included a clause that the prize shall not be split amongst more than three people. And I don't know that anybody understands why. This wasn't actually Nobel's idea. He was actually writing one person. But in any case, it's a very like early 20th century view of science that that was the case. And so because we have this term in a settlement 
the Nobel Prize goes to at most three people, regardless of whether that's the right number. And so that creates all sorts of very funny tensions in mm -hmm. science. The right number might be five, it might be 10, whatever it should be, it should be. And of course, because many other things want to be precursors to the Nobel Prize, they often line up that way. I think science just works differently often. There is this new thing, the Breakthrough Prize, that, mm -hmm. that came along. And interestingly, the Breakthrough Prize was initially, because I know Yuri Milner, who designed it, mm -hmm. intended to go to single individuals. Right, Very I remember much when single people. you were pushing back on them. On well, point. and so what happened was the terms were single individuals, but as it happens, Yuri wasn't dead, and uh, he, you know, he was alive for the first couple of years. And the physicists- He's still alive. He is, I mean, yes. let's not okay, oh, throw him off. Yes, I, mean, I yeah. see him next week, actually. Yeah. He's, he's well, still, he still quite you, alive. I don't know if you know this, you and he will be at the Aspen Ideas Festival together. So oh, you I can know Yuri's coming. Yeah, That's yeah, great. yeah, so you can so, work on this. All right, so Yuri is- Assuming he's still alive. Yuri is very alive, <laughs> yeah, okay. very, very alive. We so, don't usually make that cutoff for Ideas Festival, but sometimes we do, yeah. So what happened was that it became clear that in physics, there were these major breakthroughs, things like neutrino oscillations, that a lot of people had contributed to. So even though the original idea was one person, they split the prize amongst all 1,370 people mm -hmm. who contributed to that neutrino oscillation experiment, or um, the expansion of the universe with supernovas. There were teams of 50-some-odd people involved in that, and they split the prize amongst them. And so, I think what we're seeing right now is a, is a flexibility in recognizing that there are ensembles that get stuff done. You um, recently got involved in a slight con or a controversy over an article you wrote that talked oh, yeah. about collaborative science, and it was the heroes of CRISPR. Right. Uh, CRISPR. I'll let you get into what CRISPR is in a minute, but it's basically a complex gene editing technique where you can edit a bad genome in a living organism. Um, and there was 20 years worth of sort of people involved, and you tried to write it all. And the people came back at you, especially, you know, Professor Lubna at Berkeley and others. Doubtless. Doubt. Doubtless, sorry. That um, you minimized some things, that you were trying to make it seem like your lab did more, that sort of thing. Yeah, so, it's, so first let me, let's, let's talk about CRISPRs, because that's a really okay. cool thing, and then, then come back to the okay. challenges of getting it right across the whole field. So, so CRISPR is a, a thing that bacteria invented about a billion years ago, mm -hmm. and it's their immune system. Right. So bacteria, they suffer from viruses that invade them, and they developed a way to recognize an incoming virus, record its DNA sequence in its own genome, and then use that as a lookup table to say, if I ever see this again, it's bad news. And it makes a little message yeah. that cuts that DNA. So, you know, the, the bacteria invented this about a billion years ago, and what's happened So they deserve the first credit. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. They, they do, they didn't yeah. publish, but, it was, yeah. uh, but they invented it, yeah. absolutely. It was peer reviewed. It no. was peer reviewed because, yeah. because they lived better who had it than <laughs> them who didn't have it. No, it's been a very successful invention by bacteria. Um, and then in the past several years, we've seen the ability to repurpose the CRISPR system. If it can recognize a piece of DNA and cut it, well maybe you could use that in a human cell to cut a bad gene. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you could use it to cut and install a new thing. Basically, it's genetic engineering inside a living cell as opposed to in a test tube with just dead DNA. So it's a very powerful thing. Um, and an awful lot of the focus has been on work at both Boston and Berkeley. Because the past, just really the last year or two of all of this, work um, at Berkeley, uh, Jennifer Doudna, who's a spectacular scientist, and folks at MIT and Harvard and Broad, and I should say, you know, the Broad and MIT and Harvard have patents in the area. I, I don't have personal involvement in it, but there are patents there. But all the focus has been around the very end of that. And so I very much believing in this idea of the ensemble and the story, 
tried to go back and unearth the untold stories over 20 years. Even back to like Spain? I think well, was... this 28-year-old graduate student, a guy called Francisco Mojica in Spain, who actually discovered the existence of the CRISPR system, looking at a salt pond on the, on the uh, coast of Spain, uh, a group in France who sort of also discovered this system when they were they're actually working in a, in a lab working on um, uh, defense against biological warfare, worrying about Saddam Hussein and bioweapons. Okay. Ended up some group, a very important group, uh, Philip Horvath's group, who were working on yogurt production, mm-hmm. uh, found that this CRISPR system was a defense against that and were able to work out how it worked. It's a whole series of remarkable Which is totally, people. I mean, it, 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 right, it I mean, didn't it's, sell, it's, it's totally a... Because yeah. it shows how science works now, which it is bounces from here many, to there to, to fields, yeah, to Germany, to Lithuania. This mm. great, you know, group in Lithuania, mm. and then it bounces to the the Berkeley Boston part. And I, I caught some grief because I think there was a sense that in opening the lens like that, I gave less credit than I should, for example, to the group in Berkeley. And you know, it's very hard to know how to get those things right. Certainly, my intention is not to diminish any credit And they there. deserve some credit. Well, they deserve a tremendous amount of credit. Jennifer Dowd is a great scientist. She deserves a great deal of credit. The thing is, I think there's about a dozen people who deserve tremendous credit. And we don't have a great way to recognize a dozen people. We tend to focus on a handful when it ought to be a, a, do, a dozen or so. Let's turn to collaboration, scientists, to collaboration with patients. Yes. How, do you, how would you get patients involved? Well, so this, this Count Me In movement in the metastatic breast cancer is a perfect example of it. But there's some other great examples. There's, there's a couple of groups that have gotten together around breast cancer mutations. You may or may not remember that uh, there was a Supreme Court case some years ago about whether you could patent a human gene and the gene in question was the BRCA1 and 2 genes, BRCA, yeah. for BRCA genes for breast cancer. And I am delighted that the US Supreme Court ruled unanimously that human genes are not patentable subject matter. But it had been the case that that question had been unclear for the previous 15 years. And one company had a monopoly during that period, a company called Myriad Genetics. And they had built a large database of mutations that they knew did or didn't cause breast cancer, because any woman who wanted to get tested had to send their sample to Myriad. There's now a movement to free the data, Mm -hmm. to get all those data out. Myriad is not interested in sharing what it considers its proprietary resource. And so what's happening is patients all over the world can send in a fax if they need to, or an iPhone photo of their report. And there's a group called- There's gotta be an easier way though. Yes, there's a much easier way. There's a much, much easier way. Frankly, HIPAA was modified a couple of years ago to apply now to testing labs. In theory, they should have to turn over that data easily on the request of any patient. And one should be able to set up a website where a patient can just say, check this box. And that generates an instruction to Myriad mm-hmm. to supply those data. And we're working hard to make a world like that because it's crazy that you should have to get faxes of all this. But the point is, we got to get the stuff out in a form mm-hmm. that well, when a new person comes in and gets tested, you see a mutation. You don't know if that causes breast cancer or is harmless. You want to look it up against the experience of somebody else. If three other people had it and they had breast cancer, you might be worried. And if four other people had it and nothing ever happened, you might feel pretty good about it. And that's why big data is crucial. It is the sharing of big data that's going to change the face of medicine because there is no alternative to it. We need to learn from all of those experiences. So there are projects like that. I guess there's an extreme case I can give you of patients getting involved in medicine, which won't apply to everybody, but it's a, but it's a really striking case. And that's a woman named Sonia Volub, who now works at the Broad. But it's a remarkable story of what, how far one can go. Sonia got married to her husband, Eric Minical, about 2009. And about eight, nine months later, Sonia's mom died of a uh, of a brain disease. Um, An insomnia type? Or? Well, it was, it, it was a weird disease. Um, she couldn't sleep anymore, and she quickly 
then mm -hmm. degenerated and died. It was a dementia. Mm -hmm. When they did an autopsy, they found what she had was a prion disease, one of these misfolded protein diseases like mad cow, but a genetically inherited form. <coughs> and they found, because they knew what the gene was that causes this disease, it's called fatal familial insomnia, they found out that Sonia carried it. And her mom died at about 52. It usually <coughs> kills people about that age. And so Sonia, who was in her 20s and had just finished law school, knew that she would, barring any progress, die of this disease as well in 20, 25 years. Sonia and Eric decided to drop the careers they had started, <coughs> law in the case of Sonia, uh, city planning in the case of Eric, and they went back to learn about biology. They took some extension courses at Harvard. They began working in labs around the Mass mm. General and elsewhere. And then they, well, they showed up at a, at a retreat at the Broad and uh, folks at the Broad adopted them. And they've now become graduate students at Harvard at working in a lab at the Broad. And they have a set of strategies of how, I mean, what they're working on, of course, is how we're going to save Sonia, how we're going to cure familial, fatal familial insomnia. And you might think that that's crazy, because 20, 25 years is not a long time in medicine to go to create strategies. But things are changing now. And this teamwork is such that there are four plausible strategies that are laid out or are on the whiteboard of what one might do. And they're all hard, and they're all a stretch, but they're no longer inconceivable. And you've got oh, I don't know, it must be 20, 30 people around the road who consult with them about what you might do. They're beginning to put together a patient registry of everybody who's got these prion diseases. And I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'll, I'm going to bet good money that there will be solutions years. that in that 20-year period are going to be there. And whether they'll really work, I don't know, but, but they will be in patients with solutions in that time frame. So it says that somebody coming with no science background but a tremendous amount of motivation can do something. Maybe in the extreme case here, like work at the bench and try to develop a therapy yourself, or put together a support group for it, or mount a count me in movement as many of the patients have done with metastatic breast cancer. I think what sets this apart was in the 20th century, biology was still doing the, the bacteria and the fruit flies and the whatever and the mouse. Right now, the tools are getting good, the whole range of tools, the, the, the chemistry and the genomic gene finding and the CRISPRs and a zillion other things. So you can imagine now mixing and matching things to make therapies. It's not going to be trivial. I don't want to be Pollyanna that any of this is easy. But even going back 20 years ago, it was inconceivable. And now there are paths forward. Dr. Eric Lander is president and director of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. He spoke as part of the Public Health Grand Rounds conversation series at the Aspen Institute. The series is jointly produced by the Institute programs Health, Medicine, and Society and Global Health and Development. Cancer is the second leading cause of death among adults in the U.S., and cancer care costs $125 billion a year. In the second half of our show, Ronald DePino and Alan Weil get into the details around cancer, how it affects the body, and what new technologies exist to treat it. DePino is president of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Weil is editor-in-chief of Health Affairs. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival. DePino sets the scene by describing cancer's role in the U.S. Well, it is uh, a defining aspect of uh, who we are politically, societally, economically. So if we just have the perspective of the last 50 years, essentially we've doubled life expectancy. Uh, and by the year 2025, worldwide, we're going to have 1.2 billion people over the age of 60. And after the age of 60, the incidence of cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and Alzheimer's essentially doubles, culminating in roughly a one in two chance of having those diseases by age 80, 85. So that's, that's what we're careening towards as a result of increased life expectancy. This decade alone, there will be about 100 million lives lost to cancer worldwide. Big problem. Uh, cancer, of course, is a generic term, but we now know that 
cancer is many different things. Talk to us about the, the medicine side of this. Well, cancer, first and foremost, is a disease of the genes. That is, you have cells of different types that acquire a constellation of mutations that endow them with biological capabilities to grow inappropriately, to be sequestered from the immune system, to uh, teach the host to grow new blood vessels. So essentially, you can make this organ system and essentially that's what it is. Cancer is not a bag of monotonous tumor cells. It is a very complex organ system in which you have new blood vessels, uh, different constellation of immune cells that are working to support tumor growth, keeping it stealth from being attacked by the immune system. And you also have this inappropriate growth and essentially immortal features that allow these uh, cells to grow relentlessly and spread throughout the host and ultimately kill the host. So it's a very complex disease, and the biology behind it is as complicated because breast cancer is different from colon cancer, is different from brain cancer. The genes are different, the microenvironmental aspects of the disease are different, and so on. And that knowledge is needed in order to make an impact on the disease prevention-wise or treatment-wise. So I'd really like to focus in on uh, the knowledge and where we take that. This is the Ideas Festival. We're looking forward. We have this disease, constellation of diseases. As a nation, as, an, as, as, as a world, we're trying to reduce the burden of disease. Take us through from understanding the research side, the delivery of care side, bringing our knowledge to scale. You're in the midst of all of those things. Well, this is truly an exciting time. It's a major transition point for the cancer field specifically. And this is a victory for science. As a result of investments in the NIH over the last half century, we now have a very deep understanding of the instigators of cancer. What are the actual primary drivers for the development of many different cancers? And it may come as a surprise, but up to 50% of cancers can be prevented with the knowledge that we now have. And so also, uh, we talked a little bit about the genes. We have now the periodic table, the atlas of changes for the genes that are mutated in different cancers. And to put this in perspective, it took us a decade and $3.6 billion in the 1990s to sequence one genome. And today, over the recent years, we've sequenced tens of thousands of tumors so that we, using new sequencing technology, very inexpensive, you could do it for $1,000 in days, what took a decade and billions of dollars. And that allows us now to accumulate that parts list that knowledge list that allows us to identify those rogue genes that we can then develop diagnostic and therapeutic uh, capabilities. When you say prevention, there are lots of different ways of thinking about prevention. So uh, t tell us the different ways that we can uh, well, approach the, uh, prevention. Well, the 800-pound gorilla, of, of course, is tobacco. Uh, and that is, we've had some success in this country, uh, but and there are evidence-based strategies, but just over the next 50 years, we're gonna lose 500 million lives to tobacco worldwide. And about 30% of cancers are due to tobacco, and 20% of all deaths are related to tobacco. So that is obviously one uh, that is unavoidable. And, and most people don't realize that most adult smokers start as children. So we're big into tobacco prevention uh, and making it a childcare issue. Another great example, where science has illuminated opportunities is the discovery of the HPV virus, which causes cervical cancer, head and neck cancers, a variety of different cancers that extract about 500,000 lives worldwide. We have a safe and effective vaccine that can eliminate 90% of those cancers. We also know that UV uh, during childhood is a major instigator of melanoma later in life. There's a period of vulnerability for your melanocytes. So policy, for example, tanning bed legislation, so kids under the age of 18 can't get access to tanning beds, or uh, sun protection strategies and education so that children are sun protected, are just a, nut, you know, a whole simple list that I've just mentioned that if enacted would have a dramatic impact on the incidence of cancer up front. So that knowledge uh, is allowing us to prevent the disease from happening in the first place. 
the scientific revolution in terms of our understanding of the genes and also how the immune system works and why the immune system is asleep at the wheel in cancer. All of that knowledge is now being converted into evidence-based strategies to not simply prevent the disease, but to catch it much earlier, as well as to treat it definitively. And, and one of the biggest breakthroughs, of course, is in immunotherapy, which I, I'm sure we'll touch so, on. Well, why don't we do that? Because you, 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 you've described a, an ambitious agenda for prevention, but then we need to move into early detection and treatment. What's the leading edge of that? Well, there is a tremendous revolution in early detection, not just in imaging, which has really changed medicine in general, and the ability to identify tumors before they're even symptomatic, but the ability to mine what's going on in blood at a very deep level and identify those beacons, early detection of cancers, and a major breakthrough was just reported out of MD Anderson of these small lipid vesicles that can be found in your bloodstream that are very early harbingers of early stage cancers. The first cancer that we reported on is in pancreas cancer. That is a game changer. So that you can imagine having a liquid, you know, uh, a biopsy essentially or early detection where over the age of 50 every year you'd get a blood test that would look for many different forms of cancer. Uh, on the treatment side, of course, harnessing the power of targeted therapy, immune therapy are the major advances over the last decade. And in immunotherapy right now across many different cancers, we are not simply prolonging life, but it appears that we're curing patients with advanced disease. And that is, I'd say, the most significant advance in the last 40 years. How did we get to this place? This is such a transformative way of understanding cancer and responding to it. Well, it's the confluence of basic science, pursuit of knowledge, so we have a much more con con mature conceptual framework. We know what the genes are, we know how the immune system works. We can exploit that knowledge and convert it into diagnostics and drugs. The other revolution that's ongoing is technology. Our ability to sequence genes in clinically actionable timeframes allows us to manage patients in a much more precise way so that we know what genes are abnormal and we give them the right drug for their disease, a game changer. All of these things have changed the practice of medicine upfront for patients today. There was a mention at the opening session of Watson and Watson not just being good at Jeopardy but good at uh, clinical medicine. You all uh, have a relationship with that project. Well, Watson is one component of what is a larger healthcare solution, which is to take advantage of mobile connectivity, um, cloud, the ability to store massive data, big data, and then the ability to analyze the data. So with Watson, uh, MD Anderson has led the effort in using, exploiting that cognitive computing platform, which understands human language and can learn to teach Watson how to manage cancer patients so that the world's expert in, let's say, leukemia has now taught Watson how to manage leukemia cases. And what that means is that allows MD Anderson to democratize its care, and it's an infinitely scalable system as opposed to the mano-a-mano -mano kind of approaches that we have more today. You know, we're struggling with uh, drug costs and particularly oncology drug costs in the U.S. We're going to take a global perspective where the burdens are, are many, uh, in many instances much greater. Uh, so, how, so we deploy all this technology, we learn all of these things, but can we really afford the treatment uh, that, that Watson tells us is, is actually the best as we identify the exact uh, uh, source of disease that someone has? Cost of care in general and oncology drugs specifically are significant. And the root causes of this lie in several areas, but one very important area, which may come as a surprise to most, but 19 out of 20 drugs that are entering into clinical stage testing, clinical trials, fail. So you're paying essentially for the 20 total drugs for that one successful drug. So what MD Anderson has done is to bring science, drug development, and clinical insight together so that we can better validate targets, drugs against the target, in very early stage clinical trials so that we can reduce the rate of failure 
and reduce uh, the cost of developing the drugs overall. That's a major aspect, and that's an area where science can illuminate and reduce costs in a profoundly impactful way in the near term. The other is giving the right drug in the right setting. So a lot of patients get drugs in medicine, including oncology, that they shouldn't get, that they won't, it won't add value. And so it's important to appreciate that you need to have evidence-based care so that the right patient gets the drug and they will benefit in a way that impacts on their outcomes, quality of life, and management of their disease. If you align that, then that will also have a significant reduction in overall healthcare costs for the United States. And that's why we're very excited about the technology uh, opportunities uh, with Watson, mobile connectivity, and, and big data cloud. So just to make sure I understand that, basically what you're saying is that our advances in understanding both improved treatment targeting treatment at the right, to the right person at the right time, but can also then move upstream in our ability to uh, define new treatments so that we are better targeting our research efforts. Um, and, and so they're, they're actually sort of life savings and dollar savings in both directions? That's that? both directions. And also at the level of the consumer, everybody in this room would like to know for themselves exactly what you need to do to reduce your risk of developing cancer. And it's gonna be different for every single one of us. It depends on what comorbidities you have, what your genetics is, uh, what type of diet you eat, how much sun you got, so on and so forth. What you would like to know is you would like to know exactly what you need to do to mitigate your risk and what evidence-based screening strategies for early detection of cancer should you get versus me. And that's personalized wellness. Right now we have a sick care reactive system. We do not have a health care system. And the exciting thing about mobile connectivity and, and cognitive platforms is it'll empower the public, the consumer, with knowledge. The knowledge that they need to reduce their risk of disease or if they get disease to actively manage it in a very proactive way. So, the one thing that cancer has, its greatest vulnerability, is knowledge. So if everybody knew how to reduce risk, catch it early, go to the right place for treatment, be treated in the right evidence-based way, cancer would fall to the acts of science. So I think next year you're going to have to be one of those who gives one of those big ideas in the first two minutes, because what you just described about how we respond to cancer sounds like a big idea. Uh, thank you for spending a few minutes. Oh, uh, that's Ronald DiPino and Alan Weil at the Aspen Ideas Festival in 2015. DiPino is president of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Weil is editor-in-chief at Health Affairs. Finally, we go back to 2011 when physician, scientist, and writer Siddhartha Mukherjee was on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Mukherjee wrote The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer, which won a Pulitzer Prize. A documentary by Ken Burns based on the book aired on PBS last year. The work traces the history of cancer. The disease has roots that go back thousands of years. University of Southern California professor David Agus, one of the world's leading cancer doctors, interviews Mukherjee. I wrote the book for two reasons, and they're uh, actually, in some ways, I think they span uh, the text of the book. One of the reasons was I was going around, you know, I was going along my daily life being a cancer physician, being a scientist, being in the laboratory writing interminable grants. Um, and um, in the midst of all of this, and I was treating a woman, and she, in the midst of all of this, she was a, uh, a very vivacious uh, uh, psych psychologist um, being treated for a tumor which in, uh, which in the 1990s and in the early 2000s was absolutely untreatable. So this was a cancer called gastrointestinal stroma tumor, GIST, where uh, people would look at the tumor and, and you know, there was a, there's a very famous uh, uh, surgical saying called peak and eek, do you know that? So you open someone's body up, you take a look at it and say, oh my God, this is way too complex, and, and close, it, close it down, so peak and eek. So this was a classic. I've never heard of that before. Peak and eek, yes. <laughs> or peak and shriek. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, this gastrointestinal stroma tumor was a peak and shriek tumor. Um, and then, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, one medicine began to change the landscape of this tumor, and that is that medicine we now call, we know that as Gleevec, 
has obviously was originally invented for leukemia and, and then very soon found to be very effective against a tumor that has no resemblance pathologically to leukemia, but in fact resembles its, it genetically. So nonetheless, so this lady had a gastrointestinal stromal tumor and she was one of the first people to be treated with Gleevec and she had a spectacular response to Gleevec, just spectacular response. But then, uh, and, and you know, this was about, she had a two or three and a half year response, but then like many patients do, she relapsed. And so she had, she then became sort of an icon of, of, the, of a kind of patient we be, we're beginning to see today who follows drugs around the United States, who goes from one side to another side to another side, from trial to trial to trial, a kind of pilgrim of drugs. Um, and so she began to do this. She would, she, she would essentially rent, uh, rent a, a trailer home in Oregon and enroll herself in a trial and then, and then move from one place to another place. And finally she came to Boston. She was at the Dana-Farber Institute. I was treating her with a third generation analog of Gleevec and she at one point of time stopped me while I was treating her and said, Sid, I'm willing to go on, but I need to know what it is that I'm battling. And for me, you know, many people talk about aha moments. That was my aha moment. I said to myself, you know, why is it that this woman who has, who has uncovered in her own self, in her personhood, the entire sort of, you know, she's followed this history along. Why is it that, that she doesn't have a resource to turn to of the most elemental, one of the most elemental illnesses? She doesn't have the kind of sophisticated history, the context, as you put it, to put that entire illness in the context. And why is it that we can't have a conversation about it? Why is it that she and I can't have a really important, a nationally important conversation about what the history of cancer is and what we can learn from that history about the future? So one variation uh, or one theme was that I was trying to answer a very simple question. And I think good books are usually written in answer to very simple questions. So that's one theme. And the second theme um, was that I was then thinking about how to write the book and I went to a conference organized by uh, someone, you, someone many people will know but might not know my connection to him and that was Tony Jutt, uh, the historian. Um, and it, this was in Sweden and Tony had just finished or were just working on the drafts of a book that would eventually come out uh, called Postwar. Um, this is a history of post-war Europe. And I, as I sat there thinking to myself in this conference, I was saying to myself, maybe one needs to write a post-war of cancer. We now know that there was, a, there was a period of time when there was an optimism around curing cancer, treating cancer, etc. But what about the post-war? Where are we today? Which of course, in Tony's case, was where are we in Europe today? For me, it became a question, well, where are we in the history of cancer today? So these two themes, and to some extent, they of course, they line from the patient to the larger history uh, theme in the book uh, were two sort of ingredients as to how the book got written. That's great. And so the target audience for the book was who? Everyone. The target audience for, for the book was uh, let's be begin to talk, uh, let's unpack, let's disentangle, and let's talk about cancer, and let's bring everyone uh, to uh, a level of, of conversation around cancer such that the, let, let me bring everyone to, I, I, I hope, the, the, the biology of the laboratories today. Let's talk about stem cells and cancer. Let's talk about genomes and cancer, but let's introduce all these words so that, so that we can have a real conversation about cancer. I'll tell you a nice uh, anecdote. I was, at the, uh, I was at the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, uh, a few days ago, and um, I, I, uh, I, you know, like, like, Many authors do, but none will ever admit, I read reviews of my book obsessively. Um, and and some, someone wrote, this was a man who said that he was a plumber in Southern California, and this is actually, it's, it's on one of the review websites, so it's, uh, you can, you could be, I can be quoted for veracity. Some, someone wrote, he said, uh, I lost myself in much of this book. And then he said, but, uh, apparently, there are precancerous oncogenes sitting in each and every one of our cells, which when activated by carcinogens, such as tobacco smoke, uh, create mutations and thereby unleash a long trudge of a cancer cell towards metastasis. So tobacco is bad for you? <laughs> so um, tobacco is bad for you, yes. Uh, we talked a little bit beforehand about, uh, we talked a little bit uh, beforehand, but you know, there's a lot of conversation about how to prevent, how to tackle the problems of environmental carcinogenesis. Um, we, we talk a lot about that. It seems to me that, of course, we're, we're ignoring the elephant in the room, 
the, the, the huge problem of environmental carcinogenesis is, uh, it can be summarized by five major environmental carcinogens, which are tobacco, 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 and then some other ones. But so anyway, so I think tobacco is a, is a major problem. Um, and I think we need to find new strategies, even in this world that keeps changing, to battle tobacco if we're really going to move cancer in the future. That's Siddhartha Mukherjee, writer and physician, on stage at the 2011 Aspen Ideas Festival with David Agus. Agus is a professor of medicine and engineering at the University of Southern California. Tune in very soon for our new series, Extras. These conversations are shorter than our typical show and highlight other aspects of the Aspen Institute. In our first episode, we'll feature the Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. They've compiled a set of conversations about what terms fit in our modern American language. Is there a foundation of common knowledge every American should know? Our first We Ask Extra drops Thursday. And don't worry, podcast listeners, we'll continue to release our weekly Aspen Ideas to Go podcasts that feature onstage discussions. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. <laughs>